This morning we are wrapping up our study as we move in to the book of Philemon. One brief chapter, and yet packed, was it not? (laughs) And as we look at the letter to Philemon, we understand that Paul led Philemon to the Lord, probably when he was doing ministry at Ephesus. He also had led Epaphras to the Lord, who was more than likely the pastor at the church in Colossae. So he had firsthand knowledge of Philemon and of his love and faithful service to the saints and the fact that their home was opened and that the church actually met in their home. So as we open, let's begin um, with the greeting. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think just a moment about what it would be like to be Philemon. You're a servant in the church. Your home is open. You literally have the church meeting in your home, and you get a letter from Paul. But this letter from Paul was also addressed to your wife and to Archippus, who was a fellow soldier in the church at Colossae, but it was to be read to the entire church. So it's prestigious to receive a letter from Paul. He was even greater than the Billy Graham of our day. That's kind of who I would think of, like if you got a personal letter from Billy Graham, and yet it was to be read to the entire church. So there's quite a level of accountability (laughs) at that, is there not? Um, He had obviously been led to Christ by Paul. Like we said, probably happened when they were in Ephesus. So he's getting this letter, it's coming to the church, and it's coming because of Onesimus. So let's continue, and let's look at the prayer and commendation in verses 4 through 7. He said, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now, what is he saying here? Everything we need for life and godliness has been implanted within us through the Holy Spirit. But there are character traits of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit that sometimes lie dormant in us and have to be called forth. We have to die to the flesh so that the Spirit breaks through and controls us, guides us, leads us, fills us. And so that's what he's praying for him, that the knowledge of every good thing that's in him, in Christ Jesus, he would be aware of that and call that forth and live for Christ. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So he's sharing with him, I have been praying for you. And here's what I know to be true about your life, about your walk with Christ. And here's what I'm praying for your continued growth spiritually. So he prayed regularly for Philemon and the church, and he commended him. John Phillips, this was a quote from our study this week, said, It is Calvary's love that provides the only lasting answer to social ills. First, change the man. Changed men no longer want to enslave other men. So what is Paul doing? He's beginning by pointing out who Philemon is in Christ and what he knows to be true about his life. And then he's going to move in to his appeal to character and his request. Let's pick back up in verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, because he's the apostle, he's the church planter, he's the one that everyone has gone out to plant churches through his influence. He says, I could order you to do it, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. 
Since I'm such a person as Paul, the age, the elder, I hope you did your assessment this week, it's your emotional IQ, it, but your emotional IQ is going to be linked with your spiritual level of maturity. If you're walking in emotional infancy, it's because you're not growing spiritually and you're still living in the flesh. Now, obviously, we can have some things that have happened in our infancy and childhood that impact our emotional IQ, but in Christ, we have everything we need for healing and wholeness. So it says, I'm the elder and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So what we're assuming happened with Onesimus is he was a slave of Philemon. We know that much, but he must have done something and then fled. We don't know if he was stealing from, his, from Philemon, but he did something. He owes him a debt and he flees and he ends up in Rome. And who but Paul? Obviously, God was sovereignly moving and working in Onesimus's life, but also it was going to impact Philemon's. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, so he'd obviously led him to Christ, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So here we see him parenting others, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful, useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, his own life. He had invested himself into Onesimus, whom I wished to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Because coerced love is not love, is it? And if he had commanded him to do it, there could have been bitterness and resentment, even though he might have done it because he felt pressure since the letter was to be read to the entire church that he had to do what Paul was asking of him. But instead, Paul is appealing to him, to his character, his maturity, and to his love for Christ and for his fellow man. He says, but with your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord? And so what do we know when we looked at chapter 3? There's everyone's evil, equal in Christ. There is, there's no separation. Um, Jesus Christ, when we, let's, let me go back here to, let me flip over. Let me find Colossians chapter 3. Here we go. Um, when we were looking at chapter 3, he was saying that um, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave man, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So he'd already told the Colossians there's no distinctions anymore. So what is he saying about Onesimus? Not only is there, there no distinction in being in Christ, there's no distinction of slave and free, master and slave. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. He had obviously led Philemon to, to Christ. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. So Paul appeals to Philemon as an elder, as a spiritually mature man. He called Philemon to actions that honor Christ and honor the gospel. So he's saying, this is what I know you will do because I know you're mature in Christ. I know your love for Christ. I know how you're walking with Christ. So he's raising the bar. He's telling him, this is what I expect of you. Sounds like something else he wrote to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2, 2 through 4. He said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one person, purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So he's saying, don't just think about yourself. Think about what God has done in Onesimus' life. And now he's coming back to you as a brother, a brother in the faith. In rare leadership, They said, Paul set an example of Christian maturity in every church he founded. He demonstrated what it looked like to build a family and live as a community. Nearly all of his instructions have to do with how to live in unity and build a group that runs on love. In our individualized Western way of looking at life, we have tended to take Paul's instructions almost entirely as rules for personal improvement rather than corporate engagement. This is not something we can flesh out on our own because it is fleshed out in relationship. We have said over and over, that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We are created as relational beings. So let's go ahead and kind of break this down. He made an appeal for his child, his son in the faith, Onesimus, to Philemon, who had previously been his master. And he said to him, formerly he was useless, He had evidently left as a slave and thief, but now he's coming back to you as a beloved brother. He's returning a new man, a son of the Most High. And so he's urging Philemon to accept him and to choose forgiveness. What did it say in 16? No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. So he's calling on him to forgive him for what he's done. But not only that, then he goes on and says, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. Who does that sound like? It's exactly what Jesus does for us. He is our advocate for the Father. And he is the one who says, charge her debt to me. And not only did we put our debt on his account, but he's already paid the debt on Calvary. So Paul is saying, charge me with whatever he owes you. When we think about it, We desire to live up to what others think about us. And so Paul is writing Philemon and expecting the very best of him because he's a leader in the church and because he has Christ living within him. A statement that is made in rare leadership is that a group's identity is formed by the answers to two simple questions. Who are my people and how is it like us to act? Paul is answering both of those questions. He's saying, your people, 
Onesimus is now a part of your people because he's in Christ. He's a part of the church. And what is it like for us? How are we to act? We are to act like Christ. We are in honor to prefer one another. We don't come wanting to be served, but to serve and to give our lives as a ransom. We willingly lay down our lives for our friends. That is what it means to act like Christ. And his character will flow forth from our innermost being, which will be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control should be who we are because of whose we are. That's exactly what Paul That's how he's appealing to Philemon. This is who you are in Christ. This is how we behave. And so I expect nothing less than that out of you. In fact, what does he go? I know that you're going to be obedient to that. In fact, you're going to do more than I've asked. I know that of you. And then you look at the closing. How does he close the letter? Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now we have to believe, as we looked at in our study this week, that evidently Philemon forgave Onesimus and he became a vibrant part of the body of Christ there. Or otherwise, I don't believe this letter would have been included in scriptures. But it is also included so that we know what is expected of us. What is expected of us when someone leaves in rebellion, when someone runs from Christ? What did Jesus say in the parable of the sheep? You leave the 99 and you go after the one. You go after the one who's straying, who's rebelling, who's not living up to who they are in Christ. We love them. We pray for them. We seek them out because God is always seeking us. God the Father is the God who runs. He runs after us. Just like the prodigal son, when he turned to come home, the father ran to him and he gave him full and complete restoration before he could even get the words out of his mouth. And that's what he does for each of us. So that's what we're to do for each other, to embrace each other, to love each other, to not be of those who are divisive. Now you did have your emotional IQ test, your spiritual assessment this week. And I want you to just think about kind of how you, how you measured up. Where, did you, where do you see yourself in the midst of that? Are you moving into that parenting elder phase, which all of us should be? And it has nothing to do with your age. It has everything to do with your death to the flesh and your life in Christ. Because we are full, complete in Christ, all of us, regardless of age, can be walking in spiritual maturity and freedom and love loving one another. In the parenting, a few things that I I pulled out under that category was, I can give without needing to receive in return. That's what happens when our deep needs for love and significance are met in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're able to love others without demanding anything in return. Also, I see my family through the eyes of heaven, not the earth. You don't judge people based on the value system of the world. You look at them and ask, are they headed toward heaven? And do they look like Jesus? Are they conformed to Christ? Because that's our job as parents, whether it's biological or spiritual. It is to make sure that those in our charge, those that we're pouring into, are being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. And then also, I include others in family activities. You know, there are some families that are kind of the us four and no more mentality. 
And that is not what God has called us to because once we become believers, we are a part of the family of God and we embrace all of the family of God. There is always room for more at the table. In fact, my mom is the master at that. And when we were growing up and people would drop in at dinner time, she always had enough food for one more person at the table. She would drag in a chair, please come join us. And I can remember being convicted of that when I had my own home and was cooking meals and thinking, I barely have enough for the two, three, four, how many of us there are. But the Lord blesses that. And it's like the, you know, he just multiplies it like he did the bread and the fish. And he gives us enough to always share with others and to practice hospitality, which is one of the characteristics of an elder. They demonstrate hospitality and they give life to the family lists, a word they created. But those without family, we draw them in because once they come to Christ, they are our family. They are a part of the family of God. And I help my community mature. You're my community. Bellevue Baptist Church and Bellevue Women, you're my community. You're my family of God in this local place that we have been called to love one another, serve one another, and grow in Christ-likeness. And so I want to enable you as I'm pursuing Christ for us to together mature in Christ-likeness. And then it says, I build and maintain community identity. We look at the word of God and we say, we don't act like the world, we do act like Christ. That's what it means to have a group identity. This is who we are in Christ, and it's what we've been studying this semester. I have asked uh, my daughter to come up and join me this morning because I wanted to ask her some questions about her EQ and her spiritual maturity and what she's doing to conform to Christ. I've got Bethany coming up today and I've got Ashley Benjamin coming tomorrow night. And the reason is because they're in a stage of life where they could make excuses, where they could say, I don't have time for a quiet time. I got way too much going on. I'm being, you know, somebody's waking me up in the middle of the night and all those kinds of things. But when we look at what it means to be an adult or a parent or an elder in the faith, we're literally saying, I'm a safe person. What is a safe person? Thank you, dear. Do you remember the three things that are a safe person? I've shared them with you many times. It's from Henry Cloud and John Townsend's book. A safe person draws you closer to God, closer to others, and helps you become the person God created you to be. That's it. That's all we have to focus on, okay? When people leave our presence, they should want to know the Lord more intimately. They should be inclusive of others because we draw others in. We're not exclusive, we're inclusive. We, we bring everybody to the table. And then we help them become who it is God's created them to be. And when you're serving alongside someone and you're praying for someone, God allows you to see strengths and abilities and gifts inside people that you help call forth. And you, you commend them. You say, I see this in you so that they can walk in that. And it will resonate with their inner man because they know that's how God has created them. It's how he's wired them. And they'll respond to that. That's what we're to focus on so that we're not unsafe people. Unsafe people suck the life out of other people. They demand things in return for what they do for them. That's not what we do as believers because our deepest needs are met in Jesus Christ. Okay, Bethany, <laughs> do you want to put your sure, step up here? I asked her to come, as I said, because she's at a stage of life when it's easy to make excuses and to say, well, I don't really have time and I'll, I'll pursue that later or I will serve later. But how do you kind of organize your time? How do you make Christ a priority in your life? Okay, so hello, I'm Bethany. I have three kids, ages four, two, and seven months old. 
And so it's, you know, a little crazy. And she's crazy here this morning. At our but house. she made it. <laughs> a little late. Um, but we have young kids at our house. And so throughout my whole life, my quiet time has looked different. Sometimes I've done it at night. Sometimes it's been in the mornings. Right now, my time is nap time. It's just the <laughs> longest chunk of my day that I can like actually sit down and read and pray and do all of that. So that's a season. I would like to get back to early mornings, but just here to encourage you to make it happen, even if it's not the ideal morning time with a cup of coffee. <laughs> That's right. Doesn't always look like the pictures people post, right? All right. So um, tell me about just, I know because of children, the stage of life you're in, you're wanting to pass that faith to the next generation, which is what the Lord has commanded us to do. How are you managing that with the ages of your kids? Okay. I was sharing with my mom because of the ages of our kids and honestly, all the ages throughout elementary, middle school, and high school, it doesn't have to look like an hour-long devotion at night because that can be really boring for kids. Um, but if we look at Deuteronomy 6 and the way that Moses was telling the Israelites to disciple their kids, he was telling, it to, he was telling them to do it as they go, um, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. So we have conversations on the go all the time about the Lord, about what, what I've been learning in the Bible, about what they've been learning at church, um, about eternity, about heaven. We have all kinds of conversations. And something that stuck out to me um, in the book of Philemon, or that stuck out to me, in verse 9, when Philemon tells us that Paul is an old man, so that's kind of like the elder phase. He's in the elder part of his life. Um, verse 10 tells us that he became like a father to Onesimus, so he didn't have biological children, but he spiritually fathered Onesimus. And verse 12 tells us that in sending Onesimus back to Philemon, Paul was sending his very heart. So he passed down his heart to Onesimus, but not just any heart, a heart after God. Um, and so I guess that just stuck out to me to think, what kind of heart am I passing down? Because like we've talked about, I'm passing down a heart to my kids whether I know it or not. That could be a heart for the Lord or that could be a heart for the world. We're discipling them if we're trying to or not. They're with us. They see how we spend our time, how we spend our money. They hear what we talk about. So we can Deuteronomy 6 them, like my mom says, and talk to them about the things of the Lord and that not just be compartmentalized to Sundays and Wednesday nights, or they can see, okay, we talk about the Lord at church on Sunday and on Wednesday nights, and sometimes we have a devotion but the rest of the time, we care about the things of the world. That can get very, very confusing for kids. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, just this past year, because you have fought for your time with the Lord, and she does systematically read through the Bible, she's doing it chronologically, and it's so fun to be able to share that because my daughters and I are all doing that, and it's so fun to be able to share what we're reading and how God is speaking to us. But this past year, the Lord really gave Bethany some tremendous insights about training your children and passing the face to the next generation. I would love you to share. Okay, so bear with me because this might take a second. But in talking about passing down a heart for God to our kids, the Old Testament gives us some great examples of what happens when a generation of parents does not pass down a heart for God, okay? So last year I was reading through, do any of you know about reading through the Bible chronologically? Um, there's a podcast and a book called The Bible Recap. Have any of you ever heard of that? So it's basically, it's a, it's a Bible reading plan that I'd started in 2020 and then I did it last year where you read a portion of scripture each day and then there's a little podcast at the end. So last year, I'm reading in the book of Joshua and all throughout the book of Deuteronomy and all throughout the book of Joshua, Moses and Joshua sound like broken records. They are telling the Israelites over and over and over and over. If you will follow God, if you will obey his commands, things will go well with you in the land. If you do not, you will if you choose evil, if you serve Baal, if you do these things, destruction will come. That will lead to death. So it literally, I felt like I was reading the same thing over and over. 
And at the end of Joshua, we have the famous verse, Joshua 24, 15, that says he's telling the Israelites before we go into the land, choose this day whom you will serve as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what do all the Israelites say? Like, oh yeah, we're gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna do it. Yeah, okay, so that's at the end of Joshua. And I couldn't stop at the end of Joshua because it ended so well. And then we did the judges study with Bellevue Women a few years ago. I don't know if any of y'all did that. And I was like, things didn't go so well in Judges. So what in the world happened? So, okay, so I finished the book of Joshua. They're all promising Joshua that we're gonna live for the Lord. We're not gonna serve idols. And if you go just two chapters later, if you look in Judges 2, verse seven says, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So this generation saw the plagues in Egypt this generation saw God part the Red Sea. I mean, they physically saw manna. They saw all of these things, right? So I feel like they would be the generation to like really pass it on to their kids because they're eyewitness, eyewitnesses to this, right? Well, if you go down to verse 10, it says there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And my jaw dropped and I called my mom and I was like, who didn't tell them? Like, why did no one tell them? They saw these things. Why didn't they tell them? And if you go on and read through verses 11 through 14, I won't read them all, but it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. This is two chapters after they were promising over and over that they were not going to do that. And we're not so different. We forget very easily. We promise that we're gonna do this and two seconds later, we're not faithful. Um, and so it says in verse 13 that they abandoned the Lord and then his, the Lord's um, anger was kindled against them. And we know the rest of Judges, I like to say, is a dumpster fire. I mean, it just gets worse and worse throughout Judges. It's awful. And so anyways, I can pause there. But basically, I was very convicted. If this whole generation of parents who saw these things didn't pass it down to their kids, I'm not an eyewitness to these things. I could easily miss these opportunities to pass down my faith to my kids and the next generation. So that was convicting. Absolutely. Well, and Bethany not only does Bible study and has a daily quiet time with the Lord, and I'm not just pumping her up because there are other women in here doing the exact same thing, and I want to commend you for that, especially when children are still in the home. Because I thought about my morning so different than Bethany's this morning because I got up and had my coffee and my quiet time all by myself in my chair, and my house was completely quiet, and I got myself ready without having to get anybody else ready. And I did not only have to get three children ready and pack their lunches, you know, I drove to church quietly in my car, and I didn't have to go deliver little people to the nursery and then get back into Bible study. <laughs> when, she, when she walked into Steve's office for us to kind of walk back through this, I said, just exhale. <laughs> Just exhale. So for those of you that got children here, or maybe you're homeschooling your children, I commend you, stay with the stuff. It is worth it. There was a fabulous article going around sometime last year about bring your children to church, but it's what you value. You're passing on to your children. When they see you making time and making things happen that pertain to the Lord. But not only that, David was on a mission trip last week, her husband in Nicaragua. He has a tremendous spiritual heritage. His father had been kind of the liaison between our international mission board and the work in, in Nicaragua. And so he had this plan with some of the nationals there to build, was it seven churches in various cities? And so they would go in, they would lead people to Christ, they would develop like a Bible study, and then they would buy land, they would actually build a physical structure. Well, Mike died last April from brain cancer, and there was one church left to be finished. And David was there last week working on that seventh church. Isn't that precious? 
That's a precious heritage. But you know what? It doesn't just happen. You've got to live for Christ with your whole being. When we die to the flesh, Christ takes over. But we've got to get beyond the petty things that divide us in our families and in the body of Christ, locally and at large. We've got to focus on the kingdom of God. I was just this past weekend, I spoke at the Tennessee Baptist Convention slash Women's WMU, Women's Missions Union, meeting their retreat in Gatlinburg. And I was with several of our IMB missionaries. And can I just tell you, I love their heart. Oh my goodness, they've laid it all on the line. Some of them in places where you can be persecuted to be a believer. Some of them in very hard places where there's much poverty. And yet they have laid everything, their lives, their families, everything on the line for the gospel. And I came back just more convinced and more convicted to run into Memphis, Tennessee in every area that God gives us an opportunity to take the gospel, the light, the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to do that. It's what we're called to. What else did you want to share with them? Okay, this is the last thing. But basically, if you've read the book of Judges, you know, towards the end, it says that everyone was, there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so then they started begging for a king. But if you read, this is what's so beautiful about reading through the whole Bible and reading it in order. Um, you see that people and sin, it just keeps happening in cycles. So then if you go through first and second Kings, the idolatry sadly just continued. And a lot of them did not pass down a heart for God, like we've been talking about. And so if you look in 2 Kings, this is one of my favorite verses ever. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14, or verse 14 is talking about the Israelites. It says they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been. So we oftentimes act as our parents have. Who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes. They went after false idols and they became false. And so in this whole concept of passing down a heart for God, once I got to first and second Kings and saw that all of these Kings continued to let the people worship idols, they didn't tear down the high places. I mean, this happened over and over and over. Um, I just had to ask, okay, what are the idols in my own heart? What do I love? Who do I love? Um, and our kids could tell us. I heard um, a mom share recently that she oftentimes asked her kids, what does mommy love? And then we need to let their responses, we really need to contemplate on their responses, and we need to make them um, think about how we're living out our faith in front of our kids. Um, and so I so badly just want to pass down a living and active faith and not just rules and regulations. And so I'll end with this. A, a long time ago, I told my mom, probably in middle school, um, that I could never doubt God's existence or that he's real or that the Bible is true if you took away my salvation in the way that I've experienced the Lord, just based off of the way, not because my parents were in ministry either, just the way I saw them living out a living and active faith at home. Um, I saw prayers answered. I saw them always in their Bible and um, the way they spent their time and the way they spent their money. I noticed that as a kid. And so I saw, okay, this is not just something we do on Sundays. What Moses told the people in Deuteronomy that these are not mere words for you. This is your very life. And I saw that. And so even if I had a time where I wanted to rebel, I knew I would come back. And so it just was not worth it to me because this, I knew these words were my very life and I want to pass down a living and active faith. And it's, it's not so boring as all of just the legalistic rules and regulations. Now, when we live for the Lord, we will be exhibiting holiness. I'm not saying that, but instead of just beating our kids, you know, with rules and devotions and all of these things, 
they need to see your heart for God and they will want that. Because once you taste that, nothing else satisfies. So that was all. Thank you. Guys, stay here with me. I'm going to close with one more quote from Rare Leadership because I want us to think about it and I want you to think about it in light of social media and cultural Christianity, some of the divisiveness that we're seeing even among believers. Leaders who are dominated by fear will map out the world around them in terms of problems to be solved. Their brains by default lock onto whatever is scary or potentially bad in their environment, and that is what gets all of their attention. On the other hand, joy-oriented people, and those are the people who are walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, map out their world in terms of what is good in life. They excel at appreciation and, as Paul encouraged us, fix their minds on what is lovely, excellent, and praiseworthy. These leaders don't ignore problems. In fact, they're more likely to stop avoiding problems than fear-based leaders. However, they deal with problems in a relational way. Their goal is to solve problems in a way that makes relationships stronger when they are finished. So I want to encourage you, as you talk to other believers, as you live out your day, be a joy-oriented, spirit-filled believer who is seeking to do what? Draw others closer to God, closer to other people, and help them become who God has created them to be. That means we're not going to be tearing people down privately or publicly on social media. Deal with issues. Do not ever attack people. So much of this is going on right now in cultural Christianity, and I say cultural because that is not spirit-filled Christ-following, okay? We are to be joy-oriented believers, not fear-mongers. What are we to be? Anxious for nothing. Because if I am anxious, what am I saying? I don't trust God. I have to take care of this. I have to make this happen. It all depends on me. Heaven, help us if it all depends on us. It is on him. Listen to Craig and Jean's testimony. This is not something anybody would choose. But what are they doing? Lord, redeem it. Strengthen us. Make us more like Jesus in the midst of it. And then use it to bring glory and honor to your name. She's not having a self-pity party. Does she some days hurt? Is she some days discouraged? I'm sure she is. But we know our gene well enough to know she's not going to stay there. <laughs> she's going to roll that over onto the Lord. And as you come alongside and as we pray, God lifts that burden off of her. And she's able to experience a joy-oriented life even in the midst of the journey she's taking. We are to be different from the world. We don't fit in. We don't look like the world. We don't sound like the world. We have a completely different value system. And when we start living in his word and for his glory, he sets us free. He heals us. He heals our emotions. He heals our minds. He fills us to overflowing with his spirit so that we are refreshing to those that we're around. And we're able to love them out of the overflow because Christ is the one who's meeting every need we have. 
So those of you in here, women, we have all age ranges and we've got teen girls. In fact, I was telling Bethany, I've got some senior high girls that are elders in the faith. They're graduating from high school this year and they are so rock solid in their love for Jesus and their trust in his sovereignty. They're elders in the faith already. They're already teaching. They teach in the junior high uh, Sunday school classes. They are discipling people. They are winning people to Jesus. I mean, they're amazing. But why? They've died to their flesh. They believe God. They're taking him at his word. And he is giving them incredible spiritual maturity way beyond their chronological years. So what I wanted to do, and I'm going to ask Bethany to close us in prayer. I want us to pray that God will so fill us with his spirit and our hearts will be so enraptured with Jesus that we will have eyes for no one else. Our hearts will be singly devoted to him and that we will be diligent to pass that faith and that passion and that love for Jesus down to the next generation. It is our responsibility. Let's hold them to a higher standard. Let's hold ourselves to the standard to which Paul held Philemon. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for Bellevue Women and all that they do so that we can gather um, comfortably with friends and other believers in the faith. Lord, thank you for Mom, who's been so faithful to teach this semester, and Miss Dana, Lord, who has taught and um, organized things in such a way, Lord, that we have just really been able to benefit um, from this study in Colossians and Philemon. Lord, we long to be like Paul, whether we have biological children we can still have spiritual children. Lord, I pray that we would move up into that parenting elder spiritual status, Lord, where we are dying to flesh and we are serving others. We are passing down a heart for you and not a heart for the world, Lord. Um, I pray that we would taste and see that you are good and that we would invite others, Lord, to just the streams of living water, Lord, and tell them that they can drink and that they will not be thirsty anymore and that we could lead them, Lord, to a way of life um, that isn't anxious, that isn't worried um, about raising kids in a a scary world and a scary time when there's... um, just a lot of uncertainty going around, Lord, but that we would be fired up, Lord, to pass our faith down to our children or to our spiritual children, Lord, and to show them a way, Lord, that is different than the way their peers might be living, um, than the way the rest of the world says that you can find happiness, Lord. And Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.